Good morning. All right, so we're going to be in Romans 15 this morning. So you can go ahead and be turning to that. Because, you know, what, what better passage of Scripture on a Mother's Day sermon than Romans 15? Okay, whatever. This is just where we're at. This is the card that was dealt me, and I'm playing it today. Okay, we've been in Romans for a really long time. Those of you who are with us, it's been an incredible study of God's Word. But while you're turning um, to Romans 15, I wanted to tell you about a little slice of motherhood life that was given to me just this very week. Because I never want for material people, I just live my life and it comes to me. And so I, um, I, I want to say this first, because some of you probably don't know me. We're just like some visiting mothers here. And I want you to understand where I'm coming from so you, don't, um, so you can continue to like me. And so I um, do want you to know that for me, I adore motherhood. So I want to make this disclaimer first. I love it. Um, a million times in my life as a mom, I have wondered how on earth have I gotten to be this blessed to get to be a mother. And it's magical, and it's hilarious, and it's exciting, and it's fun, and it's beautiful, and it's precious, okay? But what I want to tell you this morning is that by 8.30 p.m. during the week, I am over it, okay? (laughs) So I mean that nicely, but that's when it shuts down. And so Wednesday at 9.30 p.m., and understand that my children have an 8 p.m. bedtime, okay? So at 9.30, my youngest comes downstairs, Caleb, from whom most of the material comes, and says, whoops, I forgot that tomorrow I have to turn in um, an interview, and it has to be with a parent or a grandparent. And I said, well, guess what? You're getting an F, because this is not my problem. Your crisis is not mine. I said, so, sorry, should have thought about this earlier when you were playing Xbox. Um, but then he does the story, Mom, this is a big deal. It's a group project, and we're doing a PowerPoint presentation from it. And tomorrow's our only day in the computer lab. I got the whole sob story. So I just, I was seeing red. And, of course, it's 930, so I can't call a grandparent. They're in bed. And so Brandon is conveniently gone missing, and so I have to do the interview, and I am furious, okay? I'm furious the whole time, and so um, apparently this whole project is him, you're supposed to interview someone in his family, a parent or grandparent, to determine where, where are you coming from? What was your life like? I will tell you that I took a glimpse at this, and I see four pages front and back of questions that he has to write my answer down for. So if any of you have a third grade son, you understand that it takes them one million years to write one sentence. So I'm getting blotchy and I'm getting sweaty. And, um, and so one of the questions is this, how is your life different now than when you were a kid? How is life in general different now than when you were a kid? So remember, I'm coming at these answers um, with a little bit of an angry tone, okay? So... I said, okay, you want to know? Get your pencil ready because here's the deal. Guess what? We didn't have the internet, all right? Shocking. If you wanted to know something, you had to get your parents to drive you to the actual library and you had to look it up in a real book, okay? I'm like, Dewey Decimal System? You don't even know what that means. You don't even know. And I said, there was no email to either. If you wanted to tell somebody something, you had to call them on the one phone that you had in your house to the one phone that they had in their house and they're all attached to the walls by wires. And you just had to hope 
that nobody was on the phone and you were not going to get a busy signal for 45 minutes, okay? That's how, so don't be telling me, I'm eight, I need a cell phone, all right? And I said, listen, mister, there was no Cartoon Network, there was no Disney Channel, there was no Nickelodeon. We had cartoons one day a week. Do you understand what I'm saying to you? Saturday morning. We waited all week for it, you spoiled kid. I said, listen, our moms made us stay outside and play from the end of May to the end of August. They had no idea where we were. They didn't care. They just wanted us out from underneath their business, which is the exact opposite of how we helicopter over you people. Now look, we're all live to tell, okay? So it's fine. And don't get me started on car seats. I'm like, keep writing, kid. We didn't have car seats or heaven forbid booster seats. Good grief. I told Caleb, your uncle Drew sat on the armrest in the front bench seat between Grana and Peepaw. And there was no seat belts. And if he had to make an emergency stop, Grana went like this. Okay? That's how we did it. That's how we lived. That's how we drove around the world. I said, you wouldn't have made it five minutes in 1982. So anyway, clearly... I was super annoyed about my son's timing, but I like what his teacher was getting at. And it was this, what's your family history? What was it like for your parents? What was it like for your grandparents? What were their lives like and how does all that affect you? Let me tell you how I'm segueing this into the study of Romans and really just the study of scripture in general. Um, I've always said that I believe being a really good student of the word, if you are going to take it seriously, if you are going to learn what it means to really study scripture, that means asking two questions of every passage, of every book, of every piece of the Bible that you're looking at. And it's a balance of this. What did it mean then? And what does it mean now? And we need to know both of those things. They both matter. And if we're tipping one to the other, we are missing half of the story. Here's the beauty of our faith. We don't just have this squishy, intangible, personal deal that at one point in our life we struck up with Jesus. And so it's all about me and it's all about my life and it's all about what's going on now. We have this historical, factual, rich, chronicled faith that is full of real people and full of real places and real stories. And all of that deeply affects not only our understanding of any given passage, but really our whole belief system. That stuff matters. So I'm going to go back and forth today as we work through sort of the back half of Romans 15. I'm going to go back and forth the way I studied it, the way I usually study, which is what did it mean then and what does it mean now? And I'll kind of show you back and forth how we go. So Romans begins with a lot of really important contextual information. Most books in the Bible do. And then we know, if you've been here for the last few months, Paul writes this theological masterpiece right in the middle of it. And it is heady and it is heavy. And so now as we're kind of getting to the end of the letter, he starts wrapping it up with a few more factual things to pay attention to. So for those of you who have not been here with us for the last few weeks, I'm going to just give you the quick soundbite reminder of the framework of this Letter, And so we know that it's written by Paul, who was the high Pharisee, Christian persecutor turned Christ follower, church planner to the Gentiles. His, his transformation story is pretty much the crown jewel of the New Testament. 
And the win of Romans is this. So Paul, after being trained up for years and years and years by the apostles and then church planning in Antioch with Barnabas for a lot of years, Paul starts these missionary journeys, okay? And, and the whole point is to begin taking this message of Jesus and of salvation to the Gentiles. And the Gentiles is just a biblical way to say anyone who's not Jewish. Okay, so he is really the linchpin when it comes to taking the message outside the bounds of the family for the first time in history. And so he took three missionary journeys. They're all recorded in Acts. They're very exciting. It kind of reads like a novel. So I want to just show you, because it matters, the basic geography really quickly of those trips. Jesus uh, was crucified and rose from the dead uh, for all practical purposes, 33 uh, AD. And then the church uh, began, and then Antioch becomes the center of the movement, not Jerusalem. They were kicked out of Jerusalem. And then the apostle Paul goes on a missionary journey. He's sent from the church of Antioch, and that's his first journey, goes into southern Turkey. His second journey, he goes back and sees those churches. And then Paul starts his uh, third journey. And on his third journey, he is raising support for the poor in Jerusalem. Goes back to the original churches, goes to Ephesus. He spends two years in Ephesus, and he writes a letter to the church at Corinth, 1 Corinthians. Then he goes back to Macedonia, which is the area that Philippi, Berea, and Thessalonica are in. He writes a, a second letter to the Corinthians from Philippi, that's 2 Corinthians. And then he travels down from Macedonia, travels back uh, to Corinth. And then he stays a good while uh, in Corinth. And while he's in Corinth, this is all about in Acts 20, he writes the letter to the church in Rome. I know what you're thinking. I know why you come to ANC for the high-tech presentations. Okay, that's, why we, that's how we keep you here. Um, so basically, Paul wrote to the Romans in 57 AD from Corinth on the tail end of his third and final missionary journey. And we know that he was in Corinth for about three months. And so just a quick reminder on who was this written to? Who, what was the deal with the Roman um, church? So first of all, Rome was the capital city of the Roman Empire, which was the world power at the time. And at, the, at this writing was the largest city in the world, somewhere north of a million people. And so um, this was currently during Nero's reign. And so if you know anything about that, you know this was a very dangerous and very fragile time to be a believer in Rome. And we know from the writings, this was not a highly organized church. And um, we know that because there were no ordained leaders of any title. Um, this was a church, of course, with only the Hebrew scriptures, which was the Old Testament, because the Gospels hadn't been written yet. And the letters of the New Testament had all been sent to other churches at this point. So Romans, this letter to the church, is the first piece of strictly Christian literature this church has ever seen. I think this is why it's so heady, why it's so theologically sound. And so even with this very loose-knit group of followers, it's still a very very powerful church. In fact, Paul starts the entire letter in chapter 1, verse 8, by saying, your faith is being reported all over the world. So this is an important church. 
So Paul starts the letter with that high praise to them. And here towards the end, he picks it back up again in verse 14, chapter 15. I myself am convinced, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, complete in knowledge, and competent to instruct one another. I want to hover right there for a minute before we move on. So first of all, I would ask, what did this mean then? Okay, what's the point of this writing? What is the point of this section? Um, I like this. Paul likes the word convinced. Okay, at this point, he's used it eight times um, in this letter. So my question is, how could Paul be convinced about the spiritual health of these believers in Rome if he had never even been there? You can peek forward in chapter 16 and see this laundry list of special greetings to friends and to ministry partners and to relatives that Paul is sending his love to. In verse 3, beginning with Priscilla and Aquila, which is interesting because they are Romans, this Roman couple, but at some point they were exiled out of, Roman, out of Rome excuse me, for their faith and found sanctuary in Corinth. And so they were in Corinth during the same three months that Paul was. So this is probably how he first heard of the Roman church, the Roman church through Priscilla and Aquila, and then begins this sort of love letter relationship with them from a distance. And then he goes on to list all these other friends and fellow church planners, calling them by name and, and giving them these special greetings. And so what we know is this, these words to the Roman church, this was not idle flattery, okay? He knows them, and this is genuine encouragement and genuine acknowledgement. So what could this mean for us now? if we're going to transition this into our context, that one little sentence in chapter 14, or excuse me, in verse 14 is packed. Paul says a couple of really, really important things that I don't want us to miss. He says to them, you're full of goodness and you're complete in knowledge. Full of goodness, complete in knowledge. Why is it that these two qualities seem mutually exclusive in the Christian community these days? Do you know what I mean? You're either good and kind and generous and concerned about human suffering and engaged in the illnesses and the needs of the world, or you're smart and studious and careful with theology and well-learned. If you dig just a little bit into the Christian conversation at large right now, you would find a bunch of tension between these two positions right now, which is maddening. Because we are called to both. This is not an either-or situation, and it is ridiculous that we of the body of Christ have made it that way. Paul commends the Romans for exhibiting both. This beautiful combination of head plus heart, which is an excellent, if not rare, combo. So either extreme without the other is incomplete, and worse, it hurts our gospel. We're responsible for both. Now, if you've been around this church for five seconds, you know that the opportunities to act with goodness are abundant around these parts. That seems to be the foot that we lead with, or at least the one that people see the most. In fact, we had a church planner join us last Sunday here just for worship, a church planning somewhere else in the city, and he sent Brandon an email later in the week, and he said, I have never been so moved or convicted toward justice just by reading someone's church bulletin. So that's kind of what people see about us first. But it is also our responsibility, and we also care deeply about becoming complete in knowledge. That matters so very much 
to our journey as Christ followers. And I say this lovingly, truly, and gently, but I see perfectly capable, smart, driven, ambitious people tackle all sorts of subjects when it comes to their business or their passions or their interests or their hobbies or their families or their personal success. You know, we learn, we investigate, we research, we, we get in groups, we ask questions, we hash it all out and figure it all out. But it's so strange that when it comes to Scripture, when it comes to the study of God's Word, word and learning what does this mean, it's like this stumbling block where perfectly able people just shut down and throw their hands in the air and say, I'm just going to have to have someone do this for me. I want to tell you a secret. It is not hard to study the Bible. It's really not. If you have ever learned about anything at all in your life, you can also learn about the Bible. People ask me all the time when I teach out of the word, how did you know that? How did you find that out? I'm like, I Googled it. I mean, it's, it's, just, it's just studying. It's just research like it is to any other subject. And we have the added bonus of the Holy Spirit who brings it all to life and deepens our understanding and trains our mind and, and brings us into this knowledge of him. Listen, one year ago, let's take an example. I knew nothing about adoption, about parenting traumatized children. I had never heard of an attachment disorder. There were all these terms I had never heard in my life. RR, DTE, USCIS, 171H, 1864W. I had no idea what any of that stuff even was, and I do now. Why? Because I've read 15 books, and I've spent the better part of the last year obsessing over all of that. I learned because I cared about it, and then I logged the hours. It's just that simple. Bible study is not magic. No one has any special advantage over another believer to learning the Bible. We all have the gift of the Holy Spirit. We all have the scriptures in front of us. It is, it is as accessible to you and I as it is to anyone. Here's what's cool. Paul says you're full of goodness, you're complete in knowledge, and you're competent to instruct one another. That is the product of head plus heart. That's what happens. When we work really hard at that balance between goodness and knowledge, we hit that sweet spot in the Venn diagram where we're able to, t- to train each other up, to teach each other, to course correct, to keep the train on the rails. And I think it's worth noting that, remember, this letter was written to a church without any formal leaders, which tells us that instructing one another is everyone's task. It is not just the work of the pastors and the paid professionals. When we start thinking about those essential spiritual mandates like working toward knowledge, like instructing one another, when we start thinking of those as someone else's work rather than our personal responsibility, we are absolutely off course. And I want you to hear me say this this morning. We are all going to be at different points along that trajectory, okay? That is for certain. Listen, I'm a pastor's daughter. I'm a pastor's wife. I was in church three times a week as a fetus, okay? I'm exposed a lot to the Bible and to scripture and to church. I've heard about 40 billion sermons in my life. You maybe opened up your Bible for the first time in your life last month. 
we are going to be at a different spot on that journey, okay? What I want you to hear me say is this. It's not the volume of knowledge I'm talking about. It's the posture. We have these two options in front of us. We can say, you do this for me, which is going to create entitlement and consumerism. Or we can say, I am an active learner, which every time is going to create maturity and depth. So head plus heart. That is my goal, and that is my responsibility as a Christ follower. So Paul goes on in verse 15. I've written you quite boldly on some points, do you think? That was, let's call that an understatement. I've written you quite boldly on some points as if to remind you of them again. Because of the grace God gave me to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles with a priestly duty of proclaiming the gospel of God so that the Gentiles might become an offering acceptable to God, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Therefore, I glory in Christ Jesus in my service to God. I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me in leading the Gentiles to obey what I've said and done by the power of signs and miracles through the power of the Spirit. So from Jerusalem all the way to, and I, I told the first service, I never did figure out how to say that. So it's like, I have fully proclaimed the gospel of Christ. It has always been my ambition to preach the gospel where Christ was not known so that I would not be building on someone else's foundation. Rather, as it is written, those who were not told about him will see. And those who have not heard will understand. This is why I've often been hindered from coming to you. So what does that mean now? What, excuse me, what does that mean then? First of all, let's together acknowledge what a dear, precious, huge statement this is when Paul said, God gave me the grace to get to minister to the Gentiles. Paul considered this calling a favor, a special honor, a special grace toward him. And so let's mention here, Paul's ministry to the Gentiles was considered high treason to the Jews. Even the apostles and the new believers had major reservations about his ministry to the Gentiles. The New Testament is full of that tension. So this mission that he's speaking so fondly of, so kindly of, caused him a lot of trouble including spending most of the next, which turned out to be his last, 10 years in prison. But here he calls it a grace and proceeds to give Jesus all the credit for this amazing work that has happened in so many places where only witchcraft and idolatry had ever reigned. And I wanted to just note real quickly in verse 21, he is quoting a passage from Isaiah 52, which the Roman church would be familiar with. When the prophet Isaiah prophesied that Jesus would transform the course of salvation and one day make it available to the Gentiles. So what does that mean now? How can we, how can we put that into our context? Two quick things. First of all, I love that verse 15 where he basically says, listen, I know this was some strong medicine. But I just want to remind you of these things. I want to be honest with you this morning. In my life. I've heard so many sermons. I've read so many books. I've been to so many conferences. I've done all this. 
And to that saturation, I'll be honest with you, I have added some deep, dark disappointment in some spiritual leaders and the church in general. And I've struggled the last few years with a really heavy frustration and tension. And so that led me to begin making some very terrible, terribly unfair generalizations about certain types of people, about certain types of pastors, about certain types of churches, where I used really awesome words like always, never, all, none, everyone, no one. And painting with this really wide brush, it's just that so much talking in the Christian community, it's just rhetoric and Christianese, and it's just these kitschy little buzzwords. While the world seems to be burning down outside our doors, and I just hated that sometimes we would prefer to stay up in our theological ivory towers just talking about it all and never actually engaging any of it. And this has just worn me out. So because of that, I've developed this really bad default response to instruction from leaders. And this is embarrassing, and I humbly tell you this. This default reaction that I rage against, that I pray through, that I struggle is, I've already heard this already. Blah, blah, blah. So much of it just seems like blah, blah, blah to me. But Paul says here plainly, I know you've heard this, but you need reminding. I've got to tell you, when I've heard a million talks on marriage, but I still bite my husband's head off, I need reminding. Not that I do that. <laughs> but I've heard that some of you do, and we pray for you. <laughs> when I've heard over and over how to love my neighbor, but I prefer to hole up in my house and turn my phone off, I need reminding. When I have listened to people talk about intervention for the saddest, sorriest, sickest people on earth, but I prefer to hang back rather than engage that kind of messy suffering, I need reminding. So I don't know how you come here today, but I pray that as a church we do not despise the reminders. So if you're here today and you're at all like me, and maybe you have baggage, maybe you have some bad church history, or some old Christian injuries. Or maybe it's just good, old-fashioned, spiritual arrogance. I hope that together we can be at least honest and brave enough to put that on the table and just say, Jesus, will you just help me deal with this? Because all of that is a barrier to the reminder, and we all need the reminders. So going on to verse 23, Paul gets into some nitty-gritty. He says, listen, but now that there is no more place for me to work in these regions, and since I have been longing for so many years to see you, I plan to do so when I go to Spain. I hope to visit you while passing through and to have you assist me on my journey there after I've enjoyed your company for a while. Paul always used this very endearing language, very sweet words, very, very loving, very gentle and kind now, however, I'm on my way to Jerusalem in the service of the saints there. For Macedonia and Achaia were pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. They were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. 
For if the Gentiles have shared in the Jews' spiritual blessings, they owe it to the Jews to share with them their material blessings. So after I've completed this task and have made sure that they have received this fruit, I will go to Spain and visit you on the way. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the full measure of the blessing of Christ. Now I urge you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to join me in my struggle by praying to God for me. Pray that I may be rescued from the unbelievers in Judea and that my service in Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints there so that by God's will I may come to you with joy and together with you be refreshed. The God of peace be with you all. Amen. So remember, what does this mean then? Paul was writing to them from Corinth at the end of his third missionary journey and he is on his way back to Jerusalem as he mentioned. Um, Jerusalem was suffering a terrible famine during this year. And so he had been collecting donations from the new churches, the new Gentile churches, to send back to the believing Jews in Jerusalem. And so Paul notes correctly that he is headed into sadly what was enemy territory because no one is more enraged toward Paul than the Jews. They are his biggest threat and his biggest danger Um, They hated him. At this point, they have already threatened him. They have already beat him. They have already torturized him and terrorized him. Okay, They hated him. They hated him for his belief in Jesus, his claims of the resurrection. They hated him for his ministry to the Gentiles. In fact, when he went back to Jerusalem at the close of this letter, they beat him and he was arrested and he pretty much spent the rest of his life in jail. So all this is about to happen, and Paul totally gets the danger. And so he asks the church at Rome, will you pray with me, and will you pray for me? So what does this mean now? Well, there's so much there. I'm going to key in on one verse that's just exceptionally meaningful to me this last week, and it's verse 30 when Paul says, I urge you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to join me in my struggle by praying to God for me. Join me in my struggle is a Greek phrase. It's used in connection with athletic events, particularly team events, where it is required that an entire group of people put forth a united, concerted effort in order to win. Join me in my struggle. So today is Mother's Day. Happy Mother's Day. I want to first of all acknowledge probably most of you. Let me probably say most of you because for most of you, this is a happy day, and it should be. Um, I know for a fact in this room right now we have new moms. We have pregnant moms. We have first-time moms. We have happy moms. We have moms whose babies have all grown up and moved out, and you are free. And we have loved children who are grateful for their mothers, who have been given a fantastic legacy, who have these incredible shoulders to stand on. There's all these women in this room for whom motherhood has just simply been a joy. Whether that is as a daughter, whether that is as a mother, or both, if you're in that lucky category. 
That is the category that I fit into for my whole life. And I still do. But I'm experiencing another side of motherhood this year. And it's the painful side. Motherhood is just so very powerful that when it is good, it is so good. And when it is bad, it hurts desperately. Most of you know that Brandon and I are in the last leg of an adoption, that we are adopting a five-year-old girl and a seven-year-old boy from Ethiopia. And I can tell you that the first leg of the race early last year was super exciting. This was just when it was all kind of, what are we doing? What is happening? Are we still really doing this? We haven't written all the checks, so it's not too late. You know, what we're, we're compiling, the, we're doing the papers, we're having fire inspections. It was all very exciting. Who are our kids going to be? We don't know. We've said, we want them between here and here, just whatever, give us some babies. Woo! That's our first leg. We begin our second leg in October, because in October, we got a referral. We got pictures. We got names. We got stories. We had babies. We saw them. We saw them on paper. We fell in love with them from a distance. We began sending love letters and care packages, waiting for our court date so we could travel. We began, at that stage, we were loving them on paper. But then we hit the third leg. When we traveled to Ethiopia in March for our court date, and the whole entire adventure took on flesh and blood. And it's been totally different ever since, and I'll share this with you. Hello world, hope you're listening Give me a thumb you're speaking out of time There's someone I've been missing I think that they could be The better half in the wrong happened, but we got the two cutest children in the country. <laughs> so we entered this horrible fourth leg, where against all sensibilities, we left two of our children on another continent. And now we're stuck. Our, stun, our son is stuck in the system, and we haven't even passed court. Every single family in our original travel group is home with their babies. 
Families who had their court date a month after ours are home with their babies. We're not even through the first round. We are officially the longest waiting family in our entire Ethiopian program. And I told God, I don't want that title. I told him at the beginning and he did not listen. I was 100% positive that our children were going to be home for Mother's Day. So this year, my heart is aching. I know they're going to get here. God has been good to us, and he is good to our children. And he will complete this adoption. They will be here soon. We have no doubt. But here's what I want to say. I can't remember a time when I have needed people to join me in my struggle and join Brandon and I in our struggle more than right now. I don't know if I have ever been this needy and this sad and this discouraged and this useless as I have been for the last two months. And I want to tell you this. Our friends and our family and this ANC family has been astounding. I don't even have words to describe to you how well we have been loved and how supported we have felt and how much it has meant to us to have you enter into this mess with us, which is not fun, and it goes on day after day after day, and you've stayed, and you're there, and your emails, and your letters, and your cards, and your potted plants, they all matter, and they have been so healing. Nothing has been more healing than the love of my friends and family and church. So today... I'm finding myself very finely tuned to the women for whom Mother's Day is a grief. And I also know that you are sitting in this room. I know that some of you have lost a baby, that you've lost a pregnancy, that you've lost a child. I know some of you want a baby so badly and your body will not cooperate. I also know that sometimes, for some of you, this year, motherhood is just wringing you out and wearing you out. That you have a child who is struggling, who is rebelling, who is cutting, who is self-destructing, who is losing their way. Maybe they're completely out of your reach at this point, and all you can do is pray. That's all you have left. I also know there are people in this room who lost their mom this year. Or maybe you lost your mom 20 years ago and it still hurts so badly and this day is a reminder. And maybe you grew up with a really unhealthy or a toxic mom who made your life really, really hard. And on Mother's Day you grieve what you never had but you always wanted in a mother. Or maybe you're like me. This is a big adoption community here at ANC. Maybe you're separated from your children or one of your children, and you're dying a little every single day that it goes on. Today I'm identifying with you. And I just want to join you in your struggle so deeply. And church, that's our noble task to enter into suffering with each other, not from a distance where it's easier, 
are like a team who is rallying together with one common goal. I will help you find victory in this. And I pray so deeply that when we hear, join me in my struggle, that what we think of first as Christ followers and as a faith community is how can I join someone else in his or her struggle right now, today? Not, why isn't everyone doing this better for me? Because here's the beauty. If everyone decides to join everyone else in their struggles, then everyone wins. So when you're the one who needs the rally, and you will, if you don't yet, just live longer. (laughs) Then you've already helped create this culture of bearing one another's burdens. And I promise you, you will not struggle alone promise that you will not. Everyone, this life is hard. It just is. It's hard for all of us. We need each other. I need you. These people need you. You need them. And let me just say this. Community, by the way, is hard work. Joining people in their struggles is hard work. Bearing burdens that go on and on and on is hard work. And it hurts sometimes. But I've been on the receiving end of that for a few months now, and I want, to, I want you to know that nothing has been more profound to me in this entire journey and the love of a faith community. And that when it is working, as God designed in his word, it is heaven on earth. Brandon and I are so grateful for you. So it is our privilege and it is our honor to join you in your struggles. And we're so thankful when you join us in ours. And so I want to close with some things Paul said to his church. We so enjoy your company. We are convinced that you are incredible. We serve you with joy, and it is God's grace to us that we get to do that. So may the God of peace just reign over our lives and over all of our struggles and over our little church. Will you pray with me? God, thank you for this place that is a soft place to fall. Thank you for this church and these friends and these people. Will you give us the stamina and the courage to step into the middle of one another's chaos and to love each other like our lives depended on it? Train us up to be the beautiful, healing, transformative, redemptive bride that you planned all along. And in everything that we do, may we bring you fame and honor and glory. In your name I pray.
Thank you, Jen. Uh, for those who, who may be visiting us, we close out our time in Scripture each week with a time of response and reflection. And the way we do that is I'm going to read a text from the Apostle Paul. After I read that text, I'll ask